Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. For more than 10 years, author Josh Prager immersed himself in the story of the woman at the center of the Roe v. Wade case, the lawyers who filed the case, and the leaders of the then-nascent anti-abortion movement. Turns out Norma's life as a plaintiff in the Roe case and the cast of characters around her provide a window into the abortion controversy writ large. Prager's careful, detailed research and masterful storytelling reveals the contradictions, hypocrisy, righteous fury, and gut-wrenching pain, which helps explain how the landmark legislation became a third rail. Joshua Prager is author of three books, including his latest, The Family Row and American Story, which was a finalist for the 2022 Pulitzer Prize. The former senior writer for The Wall Street Journal has also written for The Boston Globe, The New York Times, and The London Review of Books. He was also a Neiman Fellow at Harvard and has presented two TED Talks. Welcome to Under the Radar, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you. Wow, this book is something, um, The Family Row, An American Story. It is so eye-opening on so many levels, it's almost hard to describe uh, to all of my listeners. But suffice it to say, it is something that everyone should read. Let me start with what piqued your interest in this story initially. So I have often written about secrets that are connected to historical things. To give one quick example, There was only one ever anonymous recipient of a Pulitzer Prize. Somebody had taken a photograph of an execution in Iran during the Islamic Revolution. I found that photographer in Iran and told his story. I like to sort of fill in the missing pieces connected to our historical narratives. And I read an article way back in 2010 that mentioned that Norma McCorvey, the plaintiff Jane Roe, had not actually had the abortion she sought because... Obviously, a law case, a lawsuit takes longer to resolve than a, uh, a pregnancy, than the gestation of a baby. And so I read she had actually given birth and placed that child for adoption. I came to see that many on the, in the pro-life world looked at this unknown person as the sort of embodiment of their argument against abortion. They referred to her, this unknown person, as the Roe baby, and I wanted to go find her. That's what led me into this long project. Well, I think you just uh, said one of the things that most people didn't know. I think I vaguely knew her name, of course, uh, Norma Jane Rowe. But I don't know that I knew that, of course, it makes sense that she never had the baby, but I don't think I put that together. So that's the one of the eye-opening pieces in the book. Um, but I realized as I continued to read about her um, that I really knew nothing at all about her and the, and the cast of people around her. I want to know, what did you know about Norma at that point? I knew nothing. I knew almost nothing. And then when I read the sort of two books that she'd written, one when she was pro-choice and one after she'd sort of famously switched to the other side. Um, I, I, I came to read these books that I accepted at the time as true. I then realized as I dove into her life, 
um, with the aid of her private papers that I was lucky enough to discover in the garage of her former partner in Dallas, um, a woman named Connie Gonzalez, um, I came to see that those two books were really, they needed to be just regarded as fiction. Um, they were just simply filled with untruths. Norma had sort of fashioned this life that she thought was, she needed, she felt to come up with a, a life story that was befitting her famous pseudonym, Jane Roe. Um, so I really had to start from scratch. And Norma was a complicated person, but I was able to spend the last four years of her life with her. And together, as I mentioned, with her private papers and also interviewing many people who were more reliable witnesses to her life, I was able to sort of put her story together. Well, let's go back to um, how you began uh, telling us so many eye-opening pieces of Norma's life. Um, read from your book, The Family Row, An American uh, Story, early on, and just let people know um, what Norma was up against in 1967 in Texas. Okay, here we go. Indeed, to be gay in Texas in 1967 was to be subject to all manner of hurt. The women needed to hide. We couldn't tell anyone we were gay. Our jobs, our families, says Andy. If we went to straight places, we had to dress straight, had to wear earrings. We couldn't wear pants or a fly front. The women found release where they could, says Andy. What did we do besides shoot pool, drink beer, and At 19, that can be enough. And every night at the white carriage was a night Norma hoped might end in someone's bed. She'd come to work and bring a dress and Levi's, says Andy. If it was a feminine girl, she'd put on her jeans. The dress was for a cute butch. Norma slept with many women, but she'd also slept with Woody and Pete. And in early 1967, a month or so after leaving Pete, she began to feel sick. Norma did not want another child. One had been inconvenience enough responsibility and expense she'd been eager to shed. But her doctor confirmed that she was pregnant and Norma phoned Pete. He asked if she was certain. She was. He asked if she wanted to marry. She phoned back to say no thanks. 19 years old, Norma knew little of abortion. At her next doctor's appointment, she asked a nurse what it was. I said, recalled Norma, I've heard of a way that they take your baby, but I can't remember what the word is. The nurse spoke the word, but told her that abortion was illegal. And her doctor, an osteopath named Richard Lane, spoke to Norma of adoption instead. Lane had arranged adoptions before, working together with a Dallas lawyer named Henry McCluskey. Now, so here, I'm reading this, um, <laughs> Josh, and I'm saying, Norma was gay? I mean, I was completely thrown <laughs> by that. I, I, I know everybody will be. I... Never have I read a thing about that. And so here she was, this poor woman, um, hiding a secret in Texas in 1967, as you said. This was yeah. not good um, for her to be known uh, to be out and gay. No, it, it was literally dangerous. Um, her friend Andy Taylor, a woman I found, um, told me stories. They'd seen sort of their friends um, rounded up and um, taken away by the police when these bars that they went to were raided. And what was particularly difficult was Norma had grown up in a very religious home, a home of Jehovah's Witnesses. And and there was nothing sort of so horrible to her mother, Mary, as, as the fact that her daughter came out. Um, in fact, when Norma first came out, um, she had gone across state lines with a school friend of hers, a girl, to a, uh, a little hotel 
Um, the police were called, and Norma was soon after sent away to a school for quote-unquote delinquent children. So sex and sexuality was all sort of illicit and shameful and sinful. Norma's mother spoke to me openly about how she beat Norma. Um, and, you know, this, this exposure at a young age to um, the, the idea that, that sex was sinful and her sexuality in particular was sinful, this informed Norma the rest of her life. It led to a sort of a deep ambivalence in her about, about sex and later um, abortion as well. Hmm. Um, so what we then learn, um, and I want to allow you to put this in the, in, the, in the larger context, is that what's happening with Norma with all these fascinating details about her life and who she was, and I'll, I'll have you read another piece in just a second, um, was really um, what was happening in a larger context outside of her life about how people thought about sex and religion, as you said, and we're beginning to think about abortion because abortion at that time, of course, when she was 19, it was illegal, but that was changing. So your book called The Family Row, An American Story is really about the actual family row. That's Norma, but it's it's also bigger than that. Absolutely. The title for me sort of means not only you know, not only refers to Norma and the three daughters she gave birth to and placed for adoption, but also, as you say, the sort of larger American family, as I saw it, the tens of millions of men and women and, and girls, too, obviously, in particular, who, whose lives were bound up somehow in Roe and abortion. Um, obviously, there's a lot of shame connected to abortion. It's not something most people speak about openly. And so it affects more, far more people than, than, than we would be led to believe. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned obviously sex and religion, and one of the things that was so helpful for me um, in writing about Norma was realizing that the very same issues that sort of rent her life and that made abortion so complicated for her um, are the very same issues that, in my opinion, have made abortion so fraught in this country and so divisive. Norma is raised in this, as I mentioned, this very religious home. Um, where 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 sex is sinful and abortion is completely verboten. And and then she sort of emerges from that home. She's born in 1947 in Louisiana, moves to Texas. She emerges from that home into this very sort of countercultural bohemian life in in Texas in the 1960s, where um, she's part of a sort of a, a tight knit sorority of lesbians who help each other. They she worked in gay bars. She also was a prostitute for a time. Sex and sexuality are sort of at the heart of who she is. Um, and, and in my opinion, in this country, we have that same sort of seeming irreconcilability between sex and religion. On the one hand, we have our sexual freedoms, our traditions of sexual freedoms. On the other hand, our religious roots, our puritanical foundations that make abortion um, particularly complicated and divisive in this country. So Norma was looking for an abortion um, because she knew she was not the one that really should be having another child at this point. Yeah. Let's yeah. listen to this clip of Norma talking about how she became the plaintiff to represent Roe v. Wade in 1994. He said, well, don't you think women should have the right to control their own bodies? And I said, well, absolutely. And they said, well, would you be our plaintiff in this case? And I said, sure. And that's how it started. So, as you said, you know, there was a lot of fiction around how Norma told her story, but um, really how she ended up being uh, the plaintiff in the case 
was almost accidental. I mean, it's very casual kind of to know that this case has, you know, been so fraught and so important that her participation almost, I would say, didn't happen. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, Mm -hmm. she was not a person who believed particularly in a woman's right to choose. She was simply desperate for an abortion herself. She did not want to go through having to carry another pregnancy to term, having done so twice previously, and then place the child for adoption. She mentions to her adoption attorney, an important man lost to history named Henry McCluskey, who was a gay lawyer in Texas and who had fought against the sodomy laws in Texas. She mentions to him that she just does not want to go through this again. And he says to her, hmm, well, I grew up in Texas with a friend named Linda Coffey. We went to the same Baptist church. And he says she is now a lawyer and looking for a plaintiff to um, help her fight the abortion statutes in Texas. Norman did not know what a plaintiff was. He tells her. And what was particularly interesting to me about Linda Coffey, she was this brilliant woman um, I'm also gay and a feminist. What was interesting to me, though, was that she was a religious Baptist. And at the time, there was no sort of inherent contradiction between being a religious Baptist and being a feminist who wanted to sort of legalize abortion. At the time, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest body of evangelical Christians in this country, was steadfastly pro-choice. So Henry McCluskey, the adoption attorney, introduces Norma to Linda, and soon after, Linda partners with another lawyer, Sarah Weddington, and Norma becomes Jane Roe. And I just want to emphasize that point is that um, abortion was not the fraught issue even when when Roe v. Wade um, was announced, when the Supreme Court decision happened. It was not at all the fraught issue that it is now. You know, obviously it got attention, but it wasn't it wasn't this at all. That was shocking to me. I didn't know that, that You had the Southern Baptist Convention, as I mentioned, pro-choice. You had the the ruling is a seven to two ruling written by a Nixon appointee, Justice um, Harry Blackman. Another Nixon appointee, Lewis Powell, is the one who pushes the court to extend the legal right to abortion from the end of the first trimester until viability at the end of the second trimester, the point at which the fetus can survive outside the womb. The greatest proof of what you just said that abortion was not yet this incredibly fraught political issue, is something remarkable. The first time after the Roe ruling is handed down that a a potential Supreme Court justice um, has his Senate confirmation hearing, he, Justice John Paul Stevens, is not even asked his opinion of Roe. It is simply just part of the national landscape. It's not yet this political issue. And one of the ways it becomes so politicized is through a woman named Dr. Mildred Jefferson, a very important person, the first Black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School, who later becomes the head of the National Right to Life Committee, a very, really one of the architects of the pro-life movement. And she sort of sees that there's political gold in abortion. And she introduces abortion as an issue in the 1976 presidential election. And then by 1980, it really comes to be a very, very important issue. Ronald Reagan, um, a person who, as governor of California, Dr. Jefferson actually draws into the pro-life fold. He really seizes upon this as a political issue, and we're off and running. Well, Mildred, Dr. Mildred Jefferson was a 
contradiction herself. But before you tell us about that, um, let's take a listen to Dr. Jefferson. She appeared in 1972 on a then WGBH show, The Advocates, in an episode entitled, Should Women Be Permitted Abortion on Demand? I think abortion on demand is perhaps one of the cruelest deceptions to women that I've encountered. To give a woman the idea that by destroying the child within her gives her some right of control of her own body is again a way, I think, of deceiving women. By the time a woman is pregnant, she's already failed in this control over her own body. And then she is turning over her pregnant uterus to someone else to empty. Dr. Jefferson, I learned through your book, I again, I had some vague uh, notion of her, but I didn't remember her role in this, was... Really, I, I think she was instrumental in the in the foundational um, uh, laying out the foundation for the national right to life movement. Absolutely. She's unbelievably important. And she was really kind of unknown. And the reason for that is she took great pains to sort of not reveal herself to the public. Her Her private life was complicated. She grew up in in segregated Texas in the 1930s very brilliant, very precocious, um, graduates college at 18, summa cum laude, goes off, as I said, to Harvard Medical School. What's then very interesting is she wants to become a doctor. She wants to become a surgeon. What she doesn't tell people is that her career is sort of sabotaged by misogyny and racism that is so overt that the doctors, um, that that doctors who are then interviewed about Dr. Jefferson in 1973 by the FBI after Richard Nixon is thinking of appointing her to a panel, they just speak about it openly. Oh yes, well of course I couldn't appoint her to this, um, you know, group, or I couldn't have her in my practice because she is, of course, a black woman, and life is very unfair um, as Dr. Jefferson experiences it. So much so that when she falls in love. Um, with a white sailor, um, a man I found and interviewed, she basically says to him, and this is at a time, by the way, when interracial marriage is illegal in half of the country. She tells him, you know what, I will marry you, but only on the condition that we do not have a child because we can't bring a child into this unjust world. He finally agrees. And it's fascinating that this same woman who is refusing to bring a child into the world then says, once she becomes a prominent pro-life advocate, that every single conception must lead to a birth. She says that there can be no exceptions. Well, um, what where she is, though, in, in the uh, story, in your narrative of how um, now what's happening is there are two opposing forces around this uh, third rail issue. Um, and the energy is a lot on the um, on the side of the people who are loosely uh, conform uh, around the national right to life movement. Um, I thought it was interesting that you have, there's a line in your book that says, if abortion was a matter of life and death to Catholics, it was largely a matter of sex to evangelicals. That was a way of your introducing the, the evangelical support of the national right to life movement, which then, in my opinion, the way um, I'm reading your book, really blew up um, uh, the pro-life movement into sort of the large um, entity that it is today. Absolutely. And one of the things that was so interesting were the very parts of who Dr. Jefferson was um, that had made her life as a surgeon so difficult. The fact that she was a Black woman 
those very same parts of who she was became sort of catnip to the pro-life movement. They were basically white male Catholics. And here they have a black female Methodist who is a doctor to boot, Harvard Medical School, school trained. And so she very quickly um, rises to the top of their movement. She sort of becomes a spokesperson. And as you say, the evangelicals and the Catholics then sort of come together, a partner on this issue, and 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 by 1980, um, help get President Reagan elected. Now, the other person who was, you know, important in this work for them, uh, Norma McCorvey, who, as you mentioned earlier, was Obviously, she allowed herself to be the plaintiff uh, to be Roe and Roe v. Wade, who changed her mind, actually, after developing a relationship with some members of the National Right to Life movement um, and then uh, became anti-abortion. Here she is talking with Larry King on CNN in 1998. And now your position is that it should go back to where it was? No abortions? Well, I, I do, I would like to see Roe versus Wade overturn, overturned, but I'm not out trying to lobby any special interest groups or any legislators or senators, you know, to overturn it. The Lord's called me to open a crisis pregnancy center, and that's, that's, what, I'm, that's what I would like to do. So, you know, that was very shocking to me, the story of Norma and her change, and there's much more to it than as you've uh, written um, which I encourage, I want people to read the book. And again, uh, your book is The Family, Row and American Story, Josh Prager. But what I also want to bring up now in these closing um, minutes that we have is that you wrote this book, as you said, took more than 10 years to write this book, not knowing or not thinking that Roe v. Wade was actually going to be overturned. There was certainly talk of it as you were doing it. But I thought it was interesting that toward the back end of your book, you had some speculation from people who thought, well, if it were to be overturned, here's what would happen. But one of the reasons that um, one of your experts said it wouldn't be is because of precedent. But yet, there we are. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was, as you say, shocking to me to see that this thing I'd sort of been working on for so long was suddenly little by little coming to to be on the front pages of our papers. And once, obviously, Donald Trump was elected and then um, Justice Ginsburg uh, doesn't step down and her seat is replaced, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, w- it was shocking to me. Um, if it's OK, I wanted to just mention one thing about that clip with Norma. You know, Norma was very much it's we call it an I, I call the book an American story. And, and in, in many ways that has to do with why is abortion so fraught here in this country? In another way, the title refers also to just sort of things that would only happen here, the politicization of abortion and also the monetization of it. And her story, you know, she gets baptized by a by a evangelical uh, minister who's doing it in, in a Texas swimming pool in front of the cameras as they're rolling and he dyes his hair and bleaches his teeth and on and on and on. It's a very American thing. But what I wanted to say was, yes, Norma pledged herself to sort of very publicly, very extreme ideologies. On the one hand, initially, she's saying that abortion must always be legal. And then later that abortion must never be legal. But privately, she actually had an opinion that was really in keeping with the majoritarian middle ground in this country. You know, our our polls show that a majority of Americans believe that abortion ought to be legal, but only through roughly the end of the first trimester. And that was what Norma herself thought. So, Josh, what do you want um, readers uh, to take away from 
the family row and American story because there is a lot here. Um, and as I said, complicating factors around every single person who was involved in this. So it's it's really quite something. And most of us do not know this history at all. What would you like people to know about after they read the book? Because I'm encouraging them to read it. I think people ought to understand that even if you feel very strongly about abortion, and personally, I am steadfastly pro-choice, you need to understand that abortion is fraught for good reason. Abortion is complicated. It's something that Roe itself, the opinion, acknowledges that Justice Harry Blackman wrote. And, and I think the way to fully understand that is by humanizing the issue. And that's really what I tried to do in this book. The famous constitutional scholar, Lawrence Tribe, he said that the only way America might ever find itself sort of getting out of what he termed this clash of absolutes is by, and I'm quoting, giving voice to the human reality on each side of the versus, meaning the versus in Roe versus Wade. This issue, which is bound up in sex and religion and gender and autonomy and life and death is complicated and that good human beings actually can disagree on the matter. And that really one last thing to say is that Justice Blackman noted in his preamble to Roe v. Wade, which he read aloud to the courtroom in, in January of 1973, 50 years ago, he said that ultimately often what determines a person's view of abortion is their exposure to it, their exposure to a person or a story or to what he termed the raw edges of human existence. And so I think it's actually important to destigmatize it and to talk about it and for people to come to understand that um, good human beings can actually disagree on this. Well, that's a great place to stop. I strongly urge anyone within the sound of my voice to pick up a copy of The Family Row, an American story, because um, it is revelatory on both sides. It really gives you an understanding of, of uh, the people and what was at stake around this very continuing, very controversial issue. So thank you so much, Josh Prager. Thank you, Callie. It was a delight to speak with you. Joshua Prager is author of three books, including his latest, The Family Wrote, An American Story, which was a finalist for the 2022 Pulitzer Prize. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.